0: Welcome to GOLA. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author.
1: And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine.
0: Hello, Danielle. Hello, Katie. Come va?
1: Bene, benone. How about you? Ah, Non c'è male. Well, they shouldn't be because we're going to give you what you've been asking for for a very long time freaking finally (laughs) as though I was against it I were uh we are back in Rome recording together at last and we have been uh providing for our listeners a thing that many of them have asked for, which are more episodes that are not just about a single food or a trend or a theme, but about a place, a city in Italy. And uh, we started that with our Gola on the Road series that is a also will also be I should say use the future because we don't know exactly when a television series coming out shortly and we're continuing that with our more recent travels which have been often together as well as with some of our other great friends and consumers of uh, food and beverage who have helped us to flesh out our understanding of the Italian cities we know and love. And we decided that today was the day to get to the very heart of it.
0: Yeah, we're going to Roma, guys. I mean, you're going to Roma. We're already there. We've
1: been in Roma quite a bit together. We are, there, we are here right now, as it were. We're um, here and there. We are here and there, exactly. Uh, our recording studio is in Rome, and our, uh, most of our time together in Italy is spent in Rome at the end of the day, even though we've luckily been adding more and more travel to our roster. And uh, Katie, I think you know a little bit about Rome.
0: Uh I know a few things about Rome. <laughs> I'm celebrating currently 19 plus years in this wonderful capital. Um it's a place that people instantly associate with certain dishes and ingredients. Um and we're going to cover those, but we're also going to go a little bit deeper. So, we're going to tell you about Rome as though we're locals. We are. I mean...
1: Well, you, you can take that. I, I feel like I'm uh, earning my stripes still, but getting closer anyway. Yeah.
0: If you interrogate a Roman about what they think is classically Roman food, they're not going to just say cacio e pepe and carbonara and a and gricia and tell you that there's a holy trinity or like a four pasta canon and that's it. Like, that's lazy. Um, and I need my colleagues to start writing about other dishes, please. <laughs> Um, and really, you know, limiting Rome to a few pasta dishes and an artichoke dish um, really overlooks the complicated and fascinating history of a place that had, well, um, over a million people two thousand years ago. yeah uh, thousands of people a thousand years ago, and then currently millions of people, and not in a place that is particularly easy to manage logistics. The Tiber is not very navigable. And while it did provide food for Romans historically, it no longer does. Um, We're pretty far from the sea. So that means we've got a land-based food economy. And for sure, the um, agricultural nature of Rome's environs made it adapted to growing produce. Um, It was often more viable to bring produce from somewhere else, especially grains from North Africa or South Italy, and uh, these days produce from all over the Deep South. Um, and so while there are things that we can sort of say are part of the Roman culinary canon today, they are in fact the product of uh, historical influences and this wonderful contamination by people coming from different parts of Italy and the world, bringing their recipes, bringing their food preparation styles uh, to this great land. <laughs>
1: So uh, I think actually you already started us with a really good overview there, Katie, because uh, Rome is famous, if I can use such a banal term, for being the heart of an empire. And uh, as a result, the recipient of goods from all corners of that empire, which gave it a really rich culinary scene very, very early on. Then it becomes a backwater for quite a bit of the millennia between um the year we mark a zero and uh, 2022 when we're recording right now. And then it sort of rises again, unfortunately, mostly coinciding with the fascist regime as a new heart of what, what Mussolini hoped would be a new empire. Um, but that then uh, set the stage. Wrong. For, yeah, exactly. Wrong. And, uh, but that in any case set the stage for Growth once again, um, both at the demographic level and at the cultural level and uh, with the boom economico of the mid 20th century and the arrival of new kinds of diversity with new migration patterns across Europe and beyond, the ability to track what Roman cuisine is is uh, can be complicated, but it gives us a really, really nice picture of the changing realities of Italian and uh, gastronomic identity.
0: Absolutely. And when you try to define the cucina romana, what is it? I mean, it's a set of dishes, a set of ingredients combined in certain ways. There are techniques that stand out: frying, braising, blanching, and and sautéing, and Uh, a lot of what we know as Roman is the function of a 20th century economy and a 20th century appetite. When you look at historical recipes from Rome, even early 20th century things, what we eat today is a a really pared-down litany of dishes. There used to be a lot more things that were considered classically Roman, um, a lot of home-cooked dishes that over the course of the 20th century are phased out either because the ingredients are no longer made in abundance or cultivated in abundance or because you have demand for other things or trends that drive uh the way that people cook at home um and then of course a lot of dishes are limited uh to restaurants in general or I should say uh to trattorie there are a lot of things that people used to spend a lot of time preparing whether it was braised oxtail um, enriched with a lot of celery and wine and tomato and sometimes cocoa powder, uh, pine nuts and raisins, or tripe, uh, which is a, a long procedure. Those those more labor-intensive uh, dishes tend now to be entrusted to trattoria, uh, whereas people eat really, really differently at home. But let's take people to a trattoria. When you're at a trattoria in Rome um, and uh, you can visit Lots of our favorites. We talk about them all the time. You can also find uh, my tips on katieparla.com. You are presented with a lightly seasonal uh, set of dishes that also include year-round availability. Um, In the starter category, what are we going to find? Well, the Before
1: we even get into specific foods, I do want to just point out, because starting at the Trattoria makes sense when we're talking about Rome, also because it's a reflection of how people eat in this kind of broader way. So when we were in Venice, we were talking about in our uh, recent episode how baccaro culture and grazing is, makes sense because of how people live and work there and then what the specific foods are reflect the space as well, obviously. In Rome, more than maybe any other place, I feel like there's a real strength that remains mm. in, of trattoria culture because Rome is uh, one of the cities in Italy and maybe with the possible exception, depending on which which historical moment we're looking at, of Torino or Milano, um, the city that most people are um, experiencing as a non-native if they have not come up in Rome, right? So it's a city that people move to for work and as a result of that are dining out in a variety of different contexts more than they might somewhere else. So the development, especially of a casual eatery, I think, is really mm. strong in Roman culture.
0: Yeah, is it's that, synonymous yeah. with the dining rituals of of seated dining, whereas the ristorante would be a more formal setting for people of means. And the osteria at this point has now more or less ceased to yeah. exist in, in its original form mm. and and... That kind of like casual dining is is really reserved for the trattoria category, um, but yeah, it's it's also kind of like a whole universe, right? And there's uh, a lot of still a lot of family ownership. Becoming a regular is an important thing, and you're a regular often at a place near where you live or near where you work because precisely the fact is you're going there to have something that feels hearty and home cooked and thoughtful. Uh, sometimes it's not good. Right. But you go there anyway, right. because yeah. it's not yeah. just about the yeah. food. The treacheria mm-hmm. transcends just the uh, utilitarian need to eat food. Um, it really provides a sense of like nurturing and a sort of secondary home space for the people who frequent it on yeah. the regular.
1: Absolutely. Community. Exactly. Yeah. For yeah. sure. And for yeah. sure. So I think that's really important for us to emphasize because... That is, as you're saying, sometimes it's not even good, and it's true. I feel like you'll talk to. Um, speaking of our ongoing uh, violent battle between Florence and Rome, um, I have a lot of Roman friends who who say, you know, you can't really eat very well in Rome, and you know, I, I actually I don't, there have been times when that's more true than other times, but there are, I think there has has been for the even up until maybe 10 years ago, less emphasis on really great quality or innovation and more emphasis on a place being really connected to the neighborhood that it's in and serving those people.
0: Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we love Trattoria, but we treat them the way Romans treat them. We go for certain things. We don't go with an agenda to eat X, Y, and Z. And while this might not sound like a spontaneous or romantic approach to dining, it is the Roman approach to dining. You go to a place for a specific set of dishes. And when you wander from that set of dishes, you tend to be disappointed. And when you recount this tragic disappointment to your friends, you are immediately blamed for your mistake of not ordering what you should have ordered.
1: Absolutely. Yes. They said, Well, of course you'd need well because this is
0: what they do. Yes. And yes they have fifty other things on the menu, but that's just for fun. Right. I did.
1: I was just having lunch with friends the other
0: day and
1: They dropped the menu and I didn't look at it. And I waited for the server to come over. And then I had a lengthy conversation with wild gesticulation, as I am wont to. And then the server left and they said, What just happened? And I said, Well, we talked about what we were going to eat. And they said, Well, we were looking at the menu. And I said, No, no, the, the menu is there as a sort of like a watercolor of what one might experience in this place. And the conversation with the person who's actually making the food. And part of the service of that food is going to be your real guide to what to eat, when and how. Without
0: a doubt, yeah. Yeah. So just don't know that you don't eat what you like. You eat what you should eat. And
1: exactly, that's it. <laughs> exactly right. There are, there are rules. So speaking of the rules, okay, you prompted me. I'm going to throw it back now since I did a whole bunch of mm-hmm. talking after you asked me that. Um, what do you start with at your favorite trattoria? Uh, of course, as soon as you mm-hmm. ask me, I'm like, well, this is what I eat at Cesare. This is what right, I eat right, at Tabernaccia. Right. This yeah. is what I eat. Right. So, yeah, know, I mean, yeah. at
0: Cesare, I'm starting with uh, fiori di zucca, fried yeah. zucchini flowers stuffed with mozzarella and anchovy. I'm starting with the totanetti fritti, which are fried little octopus things. Um, at Tabernaccia, I'm actually starting with crostino. And crostino used to be way, way more, or like bruschette, used yeah. to be way more common in Rome as a starter. Um, and now there's sort of like a more pan-Italian selection of things, uh, like caprese salad is ubiquitous here and has been fully adopted. And But, you know, at uh, at Tabernaccia, I'm getting the, uh, for sure, the lardo crostino. Yeah. Uh, and you can listen to our episode on fats for more <laughs> praising that type of combo. And I do like a starter. Uh, I often, I, I often prioritize the primo, secondo, contorno because I really, really like it when people make me cacio e pepe, um, and I like it even more when they make me rigatoni with the sauce that oxtails have been cooked in, yeah. or gnocchi with the sauce that meat rolls have been cooked in mm-hmm. or even at some places that are really throwing it back to old school uh, drunk food aglio olio e peperoncino the garlic oil and chili dishes that used to be served at taverns to keep people drinking right um, and to fill up their stomachs so they'll keep pounding wine or beer <laughs> or grappa even um, and you know the the pasta dishes in Rome that I like Super-duper love. They tend to be potato gnocchi, which is a Thursday thing. It's whole, part of this whole traditional uh, daily canon. Um, I love, on Fridays, a lot of places, uh, you know, Cesare included, um, will serve skate soup with broccolo romanesco and then broken spaghetti, which really speaks to my Jersey Italian roots because <laughs> you're not really always supposed to break spaghetti, but in a lot of brothy, like minestre brothy, vegetable soups, you do actually break the pasta. Um, and yeah, like that's my, that's my go-to unless it's lamb season, in which, in which case I'm eating payata, um, which are these little circular, uh, tubular, uh, things that are made from the intestines of milk fed veal, uh, cut into six inch segments and then tied with call fat to make them little rings cooked in tomato sauce tossed with Rigatoni. I know I've lost some of you. I realize that. (laughs) And then dusted with Pecorino Romano. This, for me, is the quintessential Roman dish. Uh, First of all, Paiata has a J in it, so you know that we're going hard in the paint for the dialect. Um, It is offal. Um, and a real demonstration of the the use of every feature. It also has Roman Jewish roots. I know that anyone who follows the rules of kashrut are probably saying, okay, well, mother's milk is definitely in the mix. It feels like a meaty, treif thing. But in fact, it was judged to be kosher by Roman rabbis. So you have this conversion of a lot of different features of the Roman tradition, as well as the adoption of tomato sauce um, or tomatoes into the diet, which is a at least from a Roman timeline standpoint, a relatively new innovation. Uh, And you got your rigatones up in there, your rigatoni, which is being adopted in the 20th century as dried pasta, sort of originating in in the style that we know it around Campania or in Campania and then climbing up the peninsula. If you think there's a huge building in the Circus Maximus that was a pasta factory meant to feed Romans, um, you really get the sense that Rome embraced the dried pasta movement. Um, And then I'm moving on to my secondi, and I might be going for suckling lamb again. Probably. Completing the circle. Mm -hmm. It might be grilled real hot real fast to make a bacchio allo scotterito. Maybe it is breaded and fried to make a bacchio panato. Or you know what? Maybe I just want some tripe cooked in tomato sauce and seasoned with mint and some pecorino for my tripa alla romana. Maybe I want oxtail that's been simmered until it falls off the bone, really, really heavily seasoned with celery and lots and lots of uh, sort of uh, spiced warmness in the form of a tomato sauce with wine and cocoa powder in my favorite versions, at least. What else do you like?
1: I, don't, I was just about to say this is the part where you don't hear anything on my end anymore because I just left to go have this, this exact <laughs> meal. Well, I think what your uh, roundup p- gives us right off the bat, that's a really important uh, larger scale rule for us as we're looking at what Romans eat and how is the quinto quarto mm-hmm. and the not which this isn't how, this isn't what that term means, but I sort of in my mind always think of it as also related to something else that you pointed out, which is the use of the steps to make one dish in order to finish another dish. And so that like, you know, Quinto Cuarto is about using the whole animal. So the so-called fifth quarter, the pieces of animal that are as katie's uh, pointed out maybe turning some people off because they tend to be americans tend to be squeamish about them S- even other italians can be squeamish about them more than you would find in rome where uh the use of organ meat is really present all all around in mm. the be- beginning middle and end of any meal and And just, you know, very much accepted in canon, not just in super rustic forms or in, uh, you know, very
0: specific or weird uh, seasonal dishes. We haven't named any fringe dishes yet.
1: No, exactly. These are all things that you'll find readily at very kind of basic places aren't doing anything particularly new, nor are they catering to an audience that wants something really rare or unusual. On the other hand, the idea of, for example, your gnocchi that are finished in a sauce in which your braciole were cooked or other pieces of meat were cooked or the the stew from the oxtail that then can also be a condimento for your pasta. I I feel like those things really go hand in hand in this sort of integrated kitchen also, Mm. where even though you're at a trattoria, so you are in a place where they may be stepping up home cooking a little bit, you're still seeing something that's ultimately pretty utilitarian at its basis, and that's uh, frugal in its use of what ingredients are available. So you know, that does mean the offcuts of meat, but it also means that one preparation may then be kind of flexibly readapted to four or five different things that are available to eat that day.
0: Yes. Um and, you know, before we move on to the vegetal course, so far a lot of the proteins, even the the intestines, are cooked by a, a really slow, wet they're cooked in a slow wet environment, right? So uh, braising, cooking things at a bare simmer until they are tender um or the in the case of the payata until the the milk inside has sort of turned into this ricotta like substance and uh, I'm still doing a bad job of making that sound good to everyone I know that but trust <laughs> me it's really it's really very delicious good, yeah and then in the vegetal category you got you know I I was just walking through the Triomfale market this morning with clients hashtag #parlators um and I love taking my my visitors who are doing tours to the Triumphale Market, the back section near the fishmongers, where you see all the really local produce. There are farm stalls back there, a rarity in Rome where most stalls are selling conventional produce instead of things that are generally organic and, and harvested nearby. And there was just like a pile after pile after pile of like greens. And they're all different. They taste really, really different, but you cook them exactly the same. Right. You make your broccoletti and your uh, chard, and your chicoria, the same way. You blanch them, wring them out, cook them in olive oil, garlic, and chili for your verdura passata, and that's, that's a classic side dish that can go with anything. If you're having grilled meat, it's pretty common to pair that with roasted potatoes, which isn't specifically Roman, um, but is certainly a, a common dish uh, if you're having lamb in particular. Um, and then you've got some of your raw things, puntarelle, uh, which is Catalonian chicory that is very, very, very delicious and classic and seasonal and served with a um, garlicky anchovy sauce. Now, there's another dish that I love this time of year, which is at the tail end of artichoke season, the beginning of pea and fava season. It's called Vignarola. and this is one of the few dishes that kind of migrates throughout the menu. Like it could be a it could be a starter at some places. It's a starter at some places. It's a primo and at some places it's a contorno, uh, but it is almost always delicious. Sometimes it is made with guanciale as the base fat. Sometimes it is made with olive oil as the base fat. So if you're on sort of um, any type of vegetarian or vegan diet, do inquire, because that Those little pork bits can hide real well in a gray stew. (laughs) Well,
1: absolutely. And also, it's so true that speaking of our episode on fats, the introduction of a handful of little pork pieces is absolutely a go-to move in basically all Roman dishes, a little bit kind of like pan Chinese cooking, where you just have that, you know, just to add spice to life. Yeah,
0: yeah. I like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and as you're describing it, Katie, I'm thinking about how by talking about seasonal items, you're also reminding us of how Rome, despite being a place that has changed dramatically because of urbanization and because of the uh, migration of people, It still has a really kind of interesting attachment to traditions of seasonality and emphasis on that and appreciating that. So, that again, even places that are maybe not being particularly careful about their sourcing or aren't super worried about the uh, innovations in their dishes are still holding on to the uh, insistence on using certain ingredients at certain times
0: of year and being respectful of that. Yeah. I mean, if you ask, even at like a kind of whack tourist place for a braised artichoke, a carchofa alla romana in August, they're going to say, you're crazy. Right. Because it's implied that you should know that it's in season from like, uh, like November-ish until Easter-ish. I know Easter changes, but um, <laughs> ish. <laughs> ish. But yeah, that like that seasonality also is really great in the fruit category too. So we're in like Great citrus season right now, and everyone's gonna get super sad when like artichokes and all the great clementines and blood oranges go out of season, and then we'll get our cherries and apricots and loquats, and then enter the the summer season with figs, and then later persimmons in the fall, and it just it's such a wonderful cycle that's still really respected, and that's why I always suggest to people when you're at a trattoria and you just desperately need fiber, which is a hundred percent of the time, right. ask. What other contorni or vegetable sides they have, because typically the contorno list is year round stuff and they often have seasonal things. And then after grazie and buongiorno, one of the most critical, in my opinion, Italian phrases is ma c'è frutta? (laughs) Uh, Do you have fruit? (laughs) And a lot of places do, in fact, have fruit and get served like beautifully selected kiwi from Lazio or peaches or all these awesome uh, local, super hyper-local things. I know kiwi doesn't sound local, but it is. Yeah. Trust. And so you get this, like, yeah, like, I think the trattoria is this quintessential Roman experience where you kind of have to trust what's happening to you and yeah. do a little research about where you should try these things. Um, There's also a whole category of neo trattoria that are building on Roman classics to provide something a little new. I'm thinking of Santo Palato or Trica, um, even to some extent. Cesare Casaletto is a neo trattoria. It's got very formal service from a sort of trattoria standpoint. The wine list is crazy, and they do twists on uh, on classic things, adding a little bit of like acidic tomato sauce to an eggplant croquette. Doesn't maybe sound super revolutionary, but it's not a done thing here. So, um, it's a it's a cool innovative thing. Then we got the pizza.
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) we got then we got the pizza. That's a a universe unto itself. But let's do, you know, a quick roundup, all things considered, what's gonna be happening on the pizza scene in Rome. Let's start with sort of tradition and then go from there because so much is on the on the table for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've got your pizza by the slice, which falls into two categories. Pizza a la pala, which you typically find at bakeries and is, you know, put into and pulled out of the oven on a peel. A la pala meaning by the peel. And then you've got pizza in telia, which is sheet pan pizza. Definitely Bonchi made it the most famous, but that's not maybe the most typical version of, of Roman pizza, but it is the example that most people know. Um, then we got pizza tonda, which is the thin, crusted, barely any rim, uh, barely leavened uh, local personal pizza that you have uh, cooked in a wood-fired oven, whereas the previous pizzas that I mentioned are always cooked in electric deck ovens. Uh, and then you have the huge kind of growing uh, range of uh, artisanal pizza at places like Gattamangiona or... Sforno, Sbanco that are doing something that is neither Roman nor Neapolitan, but does have the thick rim of the Neapolitan pizza kind of merged with the chewy, crispy texture of the Roman. And then you've got Neapolitan pizzerias um, that are that are sometimes uh, certified, uh, sometimes not certified by the ABPN, but in any event doing a thick rimmed, wood fired pizza with kind of like a damp interior, squishy, elastic dough, um, really soft, uh, soft rim. None of that, none of that crispy stuff that that Romans love so much. But they do love that Neapolitan pizza anyway. And then there's another important pizza that we haven't mentioned: the pizza Braica, which mm-hmm. I think is a good way to sort of fold us into a discussion of Roman Jewish culture, which shouldn't necessarily be detached from the trattoria uh, scene, although it is distinct. Uh, Jewish pizza is actually called beride. That's the dialect word for it. It means this. Almond meal, almond, pine nut, raisin, and candied fruit roll or bar or sort of like a fruitcake mm-hmm. um, that was typical to celebrate the birth of a baby boy in the Roman Jewish tradition with the sort of footnote that it has very Sicilian influence and, and was likely influenced by Sephardic Jews coming to Rome and having their their traditions absorbed into the local Roman tradition. Um, and you can find that in in lots of bakeries, among them Botroni in the ghetto, and then there are lots and lots and lots of Roman Jewish dishes that have been fully adopted on everyone's table. I mean, the fried zucchini flowers is a great example. Fried, really any fried vegetables, like the pile of fried vegetables you get served at a Roman Catholic house in Easter is the pezzetti fritti of the Roman Jewish tradition. Um, Lots and lots of fried cod, fried artichokes, um, and those are probably the most famous, but that's for foreigners, for members of the community, even better known or perhaps more enjoyed because it's a year-round thing is alicotti and which can be uh, escarole or, or curly endive with fresh anchovies baked into sort of like a casserole, concha, which is fried and marinated zucchini, and of course that payata that I mentioned. And, you know, to try some of the, the classics of the Roman Jewish tradition, I always send people to che pasta e pasta, which means there's pasta. And pasta. (laughs) And while they do pasta, clearly, as the name implies, there are also lots and lots of the side dishes um, and mains that uh, you'll find on a Roman Jewish table, um, which is, of course, following kosher law, but then also, of course, because of its location, utilizing the seasonal and local ingredients, which is often shocking and surprising to people who are of like a, a Eastern European Jewish tradition, not accustomed to seeing lots of brightly colored fruit and and vegetal components and and even spices and spice things the way that, that we do in Rome.
1: That was an impressive roundup because I think you really almost checked every box and did it like in an efficient way. I think about it a lot. I know that. I know that. Well, since you got through, I think, the quintessentials of food which I guess you shouldn't use in a plural since the whole point is that it's just one thing but in any case um let's talk drinking in Rome because mm. uh, we like to do a lot of it but it's speaking of things that make cities unique roman drinking culture is kind of weird because in some ways it doesn't exist and in some ways it does but only in this sort of superimposed way so we have you know everything from Um, extremely high-end and experimental cocktail bars uh, that Rome might have more of than almost any other city right now in Italy. Um, And then you have the kind of far other end of, uh, like you were mentioning, part of anchoring trattoria culture of people coming to sit down and just opening the fiasco, the kind of, you know, big bottle of wine in a basket with no interest at all in quality and only in quantity. And everything in-between sort of, but also maybe not in a way because the in-betweens is where things get patchy and weird.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I think... I was thinking about this when you mentioned like a lot of trattoria you don't really eat well. There are a lot of places in Rome where you don't really eat well and it's related to this trend that we're going to get into because they are laundering money. They don't have to make food. They are simply generating receipts in order to launder money. This is pretty well established and well documented. So it's not surprising that some places are just not caring at all about their wine list because they are just manufacturing receipts for the Calabrian indragata, And that's also what infuses a lot of money into drinking culture here. A lot of the bars, a lot of, like, just so many locali are funded with money. I mean, for sure, from legitimate sources, and then for sure, from nefarious sources. And so Rome has a lot of different drinking options, especially in certain neighborhoods. In the student neighborhoods, you find drinking culture that is adapted to people on budgets with not a lot of sophistication. I mean, God knows when I was in college, I wasn't like... Looking for the craft beer pub. <laughs> no, no. Um, I did work at one, but I, w- I was like, I'd rather just have, you know, whatever, like a 40. A little more, um. <laughs> more, more, more high life for this low life. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But because, because there's so much money here from perfectly wonderful sources and otherwise, there's just so there's so many drinking options. Mm-hmm. And then this this merges with like true... Roman creativity. Like people have had to figure out how to make it here for a really long time, often leaving to support themselves somewhere else, but wanting to come back and they bring their newfound knowledge or appreciation of uh, local flavors in the form of like a craft beer bar that focuses on brews from Rome or an Italian cocktail setting that's really sort of promoting Italian gins, which are really blowing up or... A place that only serves natural wine by the glass and a little kiosk overlooking a piazza. Like there's just so there's so much in the drinking category. And then, you know, you have the fact that it's really expensive to store things. So the Bernabé company has really cornered the market on building wine lists for the Trattoria of the center, which is. Why? If you you know, a lot of the places that we recommend have studied curated wine lists. That's time consuming. That often requires a whole other staff person to handle, and so it's not necessarily the norm. And that's why when you kind of like randomly drop into places in the center of Rome, they all have the same wine list because they're being built by the same distributor um, who provides storage and doesn't provide necessarily education. Right. And so, yeah, has, there's, there's it has a real the mix
1: infrastructure, right? Because yeah. that's another kind of Roman. I, I mean, not that this isn't true of other cities especially like Venice and we and we pointed to that in our episode on Venice but when you think about the urban sprawl of Mm. Rome and how large the city has grown especially of late geographically speaking just in terms of the like literal coverage of what people consider to be part of the urban center and how much space that is and how much traffic that incorporates um just getting things like wine but also all the other products that are necessary for people to eat at home or uh out out and about. It's, you know, someone who has the uh, just a fleet of trucks and mm. the uh, personnel to move those things is going to be able to corner a huge piece of the market right away and then slowly grow in a way that uh, squeezes out an individual proprietor and their desire to have certain carefully selected things available for their clientele.
0: Yeah, and sometimes that fleet of trucks is supported by a fleet of scooters with the little wine yeah. box on the back that's <laughs> branded and full of, you know, some anonymous multi abruzzo getting dumped at some trattoria on Via del yeah. Governo Vecchio.
1: Not that I'm thinking of a specific <laughs> place. <Yeah. laughs>
0: well, you know, mm-hmm. the way yeah. that we learn about these things is not mm-hmm. just from speaking to people, but also observing our surroundings. And at certain times of day, you can walk around the city, and it's very clear who is having... Frozen food delivered because right. you can watch it un- be unloaded right yeah. uh, into kitchens, <laughs> and it's very clear who's using great pasta because you can see the brands through the window when into kitchens. Um, so there are all these clues as to who is focusing on you know sourcing or seasonality, and uh, you know with the trained eye, you can you can decipher some of these things uh, for yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think. One of the great things about visiting Rome is that because it is so self-assured in its lengthy history, it is a place where um, it kind of, you know, takes the idea of people watching to a whole new level. You can just do exactly as you say, wander around the city or take a seat somewhere and watch the rhythm of the day unfold before you and see how people are eating and drinking in response to what their workday looks like, but also in response to the quantity and diversity of people and options that come with being a huge city with a a great variety of needs represented by all of those people within it.
0: Yeah. So I was just thinking, one of the places where you can see all of this play out in a kind of hyper-concentrated way is Campo de Fiori. I would never encourage you to eat food in the <laughs> piazza unless it is the from the Forno, the bakery uh, on the corner. But if you can elbow your way past all the touts and and find – there's like a little vineria where you can sit and just watch the way that this, the piazza changes from like you know 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Um, and see the people come through who are like meeting up with friends or – you know, couples who are getting together after work and seeing how people interact with the alcohol uh, yeah. traditions of the city mm-hmm. um, or go to a market. The Testaccio market is a wonderful place to see food commerce at play or the Triomfale market. The Combo de Fury market is a bad place to see <laughs> food commerce yeah. at play because most of the stalls there no longer sell fresh food. Um, but the two that I mentioned before, Testaccio and uh, Trionfale, not doing a hard sell here, but both of which I give tours in. Yeah. Um, that's where you see produce. That's where you see people interacting with their vendors. Uh, that's where you see, you know, butchers that are stocking the very things Romans want to eat. Uh, the now growing number of sort of fast food stalls that are serving, you know, not McDonald's, of course, but uh, thoughtfully prepared lunch dishes for the Middle class workers in the neighborhood. That all requires just sort of like sitting, observing, absorbing. And I think it's a useful, a useful exercise.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that brings us to a perfect point because we are about to wrap up a long day of recording and the end of the workday. I, you know, this is true of any city, of course, but I feel like in Rome, there's this moment of the
0: the change, right? Everybody's leaving mm. the
1: office. And, the
0: frenetic, like <laughs> will, how many hours or how many yeah. minutes will I be in traffic on the exactly, way?
1: Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So, that you know, this is, this is this moment where you get out of work and then, you know, what's next? And Because you're in Rome, you can—and because of its literal geographic position, as well as um, its—this peculiar history, it it, has—it's transitional in every sense. And so we might—we can leave today and— Uh, around seven o'clock, go for, you know, most people are going to work on, you know, most things happen on the later side here, not quite as late as in Naples or further south, not quite as early as uh, in Milan or, or beyond. And Uh, You can go and have a very kind of northern style aperitivo and then a pretty, um, you know, kind of fancy structured meal at a really kind of new and edgy place. You can go and grab a beer and sit on the steps of some, you know, in the piazza somewhere and just hang out for most of the night and get some fried street food or a piece of pizza. You can go and do kind of all of the in-betweens you can really live the life of the piazza here in a strong way or uh, you might still be someone who has a a really kind of firmly structured home life too because there are plenty of multi-generational roman families still in rome despite all of the new people come in and the in and out so it's
0: it's kind of
1: all available
0: well, I'm going to take the structured home life out of the equation, but I think we should pick one of the other things to do right now.
1: I was just about to say, whatever happens, we're not making it home without a drink. That's for sure.
0: On that note, arrivederci. <laughs> arrivederci e <laughs> che beviate bene. Ciao. We love our supporters. Thank you so much to our Guillotti level patrons, like Allison and Gino Ruggiero of Fiorella in Rochester and Gabe Del Virginia of New York City.
1: We also want to thank Anthony Lombardo at she Wolf Detroit and Leah Ferrazzani at Semolina Pasta in Pasadena.